You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Thank you, Pastor Anthony. So listen, let me, uh, let me say something here real quick. First of all, man, I love the worship. Love the worship. And yet that last song wrecked me a bit. Oh, because, you know, I thought about we're standing here only because he's made a way. And uh, I knew Pastor Anthony was going to tell the story, but I thought a little bit more, you see, because uh, my wife and I, we were at Howard University. Uh, and I remember in 1990 when they said we ought to do an impact movement. And I've, we've been, I've been on staff since 1984 with Campus Crusade. At that time, now it's crew. My wife and I got married in 87, so we've been married, y'all. This is 32 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got one of those, you know, I, I've noticed some couples. We got one of those God kind of marriages. You know God marriages. When you see the man and then you see the fine woman. Then you know only God could have hooked that up, you know, because you look at him, then you look at her, you go, how he pulled that, God? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm just thankful for my, uh, my bride. Uh, we have three adult uh, children, which, but yeah, this will be 32 years for us. But so much of our journey was formed around together as a team wanting to see God do something transformative to answer the problems in our culture. And one of the reasons why we went on staff with Crew went on, in 1984, I graduated from East Carolina University because I wanted to see a revolution take place uh, in the African-American community because I was in so many spaces where we were not present. And yet I knew that God had a deeper picture of the body of Christ to be transformative, to even to correct the myths that have been taught even in American history as well and the narrative of African-American people, but the narrative of America as a whole, and that the gospel was going to be critical in doing that. Well, one of the things that happened is there were a group of leaders who said we ought to do this conference in 1991 called the Impact Conference. And when we started that conference had no idea that God would do something incredible. But part of what we were praying for, I remember, is that God would raise up a group of leaders that would plant biblical churches. Uh, in, 19, in 2002, my role began to shift a bit. Uh, I was more of a speaker, communicator, trained people in speaking skills. And so my responsibility at the Impact Conference, which never really got off into full focus, was to start a church development track. And this is where we would invite pastors to come in. Now, your pastor was a student at the time. But this is sort of a picture of what sort of we had in mind because it is so unfortunate that you've got a demarcation between the church and, again, what happens Monday through Saturday. And I'm just excited that God was answering some prayers. So, so you all are here. Uh, I know you might think you're here because you chose to be here, or you might think that you know you, you know, man, it's good, I'm young doing this, because, man, we're excited. But can I say y'all are really here because you're the answer to some prayers of some people that prayed. 
You're the answer to some prayers that people have prayed, and I would even say you're the answer to the prayers of those who have sweat blood and tears here, even in this community. You're the answer to the prayers of the slaves and the slaveholder who, again, navigated in the same space here in this history and in this place. So you all here, right here on two notch, are the answer to some people's prayers. So, man, I'm humbled as I'm in this place and as I am here with you this morning. There's one of the things that for me, this particular passage, and I'm thankful for the way, again, the leader, as she read the text. And I love when leaders read the text and they understand that the word of God is something that is far more dramatic, dramatic than any literature you can read. It is, it is far more beautiful and picturesque than any movie you might see. Because it is the eternal word of God. And thank you, leader, for reading it with that kind of mindset. One of the things that has been true is things that you've heard all your life, they begin to make sense the older you become. One of the the realities that I used to always hear people say is you need to drink water. And I used to think that was just a, a mother's tool to stop you from drinking Kool-Aid or soda or tell you, did you drink your water? Uh, recently had a chance to even see, and, and now, again, you know, both of us, uh, it's so cr- crazy when I think about the fact, I'll be 58 this year. Uh, and it's, a, well, you ain't had to grunt like that. <laughs> I don't know where that grunt came from. Look, y'all, you're too small to think you can hide uh, here, but... But I feel good. But one of the things for me, and it wasn't no midlife crisis, ran uh, a half marathon this past year. And uh, one of the things, yeah, you can clap. I made it. <laughs> but one of the things that's interesting is that, man, water is critical. At every place, you got to have water. Then when you begin to study the physiology of our bodies, that really the truth of the matter is, is water. Most of your body is water. You know, this, this image on the screen is, is just true. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. And I used to think it was just a myth, but doctors say that, that the body is 70 to 80% water. Water. And that the loss of water, didn't know this, but as you even see the different dynamics and aspect of your body, how you're affected by the lack of water. But they say that the loss of 15% water in your body can prove fatal. See, your physical body gets thirsty. And most of us don't even take the time to figure out what's going on. Because we don't take time to understand how our body works. But thirst is a healthy indication of what's really going on in your body. Thirst is also an indication of what's going on in your soul. One of the things that's interesting about Scripture is that Scripture will often take a metaphor that is physical, and it will do that because Scripture is meant to communicate to a human being, meant to really connect with you, the Bible is. And so often Jesus would take those same metaphors and bring it to you. And one of the things that we're able to see in our culture is we see a lot of dynamics because people are thirsty. How can you explain? Most recently in the collegiate scandal, how do you explain people who have resources and wealth? How do you explain how you would take, and again, $25 million, 
How do you explain someone who already has access and privilege to the system, and yet they would take resources and wealth and spend as much as 500? You know, for me, I just go, man, by the time you spend all that money, you've paid for the tuition twice. However, it doesn't make sense. Many of the decisions that people make in life do not make sense. And as you're watching the media, watching the news, you're saying, how could they do that? I got one question for you. Thirsty. Desperate. No, I can't make sense of R. Kelly. The only way you can begin to make sense of how could someone, and be very careful because he's been a cultural phenomenon that existed for many, many years. This is nothing new. Even when he married Aaliyah, it's almost though we give entertainers and athletes a pass, and now all of a sudden we're shocked in many ways. And if you don't know who Aaliyah is, Google it. You'll find it later. But how did that happen? Thirsty. Justice Smollett, how in the world would you begin to craft that kind of narrative and who you are? And why would you do that and even think you could get away? Let me tell you why. Thirsty. But before you become critical or judgmental of anyone that you may view in media, before you become critical and judgmental and somehow deconstruct, detract yourself from the conversation, let me ask you a question this morning. What about you? What's going on in, hear me, with this that I'm ready to use, our lives that says we're thirsty? What is it need that you're trying to meet? What is it that you're trying to feel? What's the space that you're, and, and, and if you would just be honest enough to say, even for those of you who say, yeah, Jesus meets my every need, yeah, we have praise songs about thirst, and he could, yeah, we have all that, yeah, we get that. But, but still, when you look at the course of our lives, when you look at how we walk in everyday life, and even when you look at what we're drawn to now, when you look at the habits that we know we should break, when you look at the addictions, and I'm talking about believers now. I'm not talking about non-believers. When you look at addictions that we have, when you look at the brokenness in our lives, how else do you describe it? Maybe it's because we are thirsty. So this morning... I believe thirst is critical for all of us, but I believe our thirst reveals that what we're looking for, only Jesus can feel. So maybe this morning, all of us are looking for water. This idea of water is all throughout the scriptures. And in the Gospel of John, this is a major theme, a major metaphor all throughout the Gospel of John. Because John is trying to help you understand just who Jesus really is. You know that when you begin to even meet Jesus in the first chapters of the Gospel of John, because he's baptized by John with water. The first miracle where he shows up and you see the dynamic of who he is at a wedding. That first miracle where he shows up in. He turns water into. Oh, I knew you all were a biblical church. I love that. Because <laughs> you've got an incredible Bible teacher for a pastor. I've checked y'all out. And I'm thankful for that. And because he is a Bible teacher, I can go deeper with you today. So throughout the scriptures... You see this. 
Before we even get to chapter 4, he even reveals this with Nicodemus because he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born of this again. You can be born of the water and of the spirit. You see, you see themes all throughout the scripture. Uh, whenever you see something, it's nothing new because the Bible is trying to tie a thing together that is critical and important. But even before you get to the gospels, you see that in the Old Testament as well. And you're going to see this water theme all throughout the gospel of John because Jesus would declare that I'm living water, not just to this Samaritan woman. But there's something that Jesus is doing here in John chapter 4. There's, there's a point that the writers are, are trying to make. And, and maybe this is here because in this time period, people would listen to anything about water because water was very scarce. So maybe again, and this is where the Bible is written in a very practical way for you to understand as a person. Let no Bible teacher try to put mystery and magic with the text. You can have access to the text as well. So in John chapter 4, I just want to walk through these scenes here in this story, and we won't have time to to dive in much detail. But but there are just four things, four observations I've made here, four four points I want to focus on here uh, when we think about this idea of thirst that only Jesus can feel. The first thing that, that really captured me is the place where all of this is taking place. It's the place. Notice here in the first few verses that that Jesus now is ending up in this unique place that you find in many of the gospel accounts, Samaria. Now, Samaria was a region of of the area. It wasn't just one particular city, but it's known for a great deal of controversy. And we know from the first four verses here that Jesus ended up there because there was all sorts of things at this point in his ministry going on with the Pharisees. And Jesus is on his journey. But in verse 3, it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, parted again for Galilee. Now, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. One of the things that interests me here is the place. But the Bible, it's almost as if John puts an emphasis here. It says he had to pass through Samaria. That's an awkward phrasing statement because of what was going on in this time period. Because in this time period, we all know that Jews didn't go through Samaritan neighborhoods. And yet Jesus would say here, John would record he had to pass through Samaria. You you know what I mean. Uh, Don't let the Bible, again, it's not just Jews, but some of us, let me bring it here. There's certain places where you don't go here uh, in in Columbia, South Carolina. There's certain neighborhoods you don't go to. Even for some of us, uh, you've heard and your past and I were talking about how Ricky Smiley made uh, Two Knots popular in some of his comedy routines because he would give the narrative about Two Knots. And even when you tell certain people you go to Midtown, many people might say, oh, you mean you go to the Midtown, 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 Downtown, Real Midtown. No, I go to the Midtown on two nights. And you ever notice how they're, oh, 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 huh, hmm. 
Well, it's, it's the same thing that's happening here in this text. When you read this, John is writing this in such a way when it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because typically, even according to extra biblical sources, historical sources, Jews and Samaritan, even though they lived in proximity, they didn't deal with one another. Part of God's plan is going to invade, even though for hundreds of years, there's these narratives, this story that's been created between Jews and Samaritans. It goes all the way back to 721 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered northern Israel. And, and again, the story is framed as during that conquering that the Assyrians were so brutal that they took over many of the Jewish people and married and created families, not by choice, but against their will. There's all sorts of stories here. But you have this whole group of people that have been created who are called the Samaritans. Sometimes narratives happen out of tragedy. Nevertheless, there's still narratives that are real. And so you've got this group of people called the Samaritans that, that I don't have time to unpack all of it, but, but they were also spiritual religious people as well. You see that from the, the conversation that the woman is having with Jesus later in the text. But, but it was a spirituality that caused even more conflict because while they had common ground of accepting the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but they had a different way of worshiping. Jews understood that the place is Jerusalem. Samaritans said, no, it's Mount Gerizim. It's almost as if they built a spiritual place on a mountain just to spite the Jews. So here you have a group of people who really were known for a great deal of trauma, who even took the worship of Jehovah and created their own spin on that worship. And Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews, but they were still looking for a Messiah, different type of Messiah, but they were still looking for a savior. They were still looking for someone to rescue them, but they had different beliefs. But one of the things that was common, notice the place here, Jacob's well. Jacob's well was a common part of both of their stories because they respected, again, the first five books of the Bible. And Hagar met God at the well, and you had Kaddish and Perim. And Jacob also met Rachel at the well. And the Samaritans and the Jews at least had a common lineage. And so Jacob's well was very critical. Here's why it was also important. And I don't know, again, I love this about Jesus. He always does, he doesn't waste anything. History is important because Jacob. Jacob's well was that place of reconciliation as well between Joseph and Jacob. Jesus is taking them to a place where they've got a history that is connected together. Maybe we are thirsty people, but maybe we're missing the opportunity to understand God often brings our story in the common place together. And so here in this text, Jesus is strategic because he does not begin with a place where he doesn't have common ground. He begins with a place where there is common ground. He begins with a place. I believe this is very intentional as Jesus is in a place where the, the regular narrative is saying you don't belong here. Jesus here is establishing, John is establishing that there is common ground even in the place where you think you don't belong. 
Our thirst reveals that sometimes what we're looking for only Jesus can feel. But even in this place, there are some problems. And secondly, problems reveal your thirst. I just want to walk you through several of the problems here because because first of all here, even though there's common ground, don't miss this. And I think we miss this when we read uh, this text here. Notice what the Bible says. It says here, verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, oh, ESV says, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, other translation says Jesus was tired from his journey. If it's the sixth hour, possibly he's been traveling for six Hours, And we know from reading further in the text that the disciples have gone to buy food. So he's been traveling a long time. He's tired. He's hungry. Jesus, as he's getting ready to meet this woman, as he's getting ready to engage in this story, Jesus is tired. No, you didn't catch that. Jesus is tired. Why has that got you excited, James? Here's why. I've got a Savior who gets tired like I get tired. That is written in the Bible so that you would clue in. And one of the things that's amazing is this, is that here's the one who is fully God, but he's willing to be tired just like I am. Because I don't know about you, I need someone who can understand when I'm tired. I am so glad that Jesus, even though he's fully God, he's fully man. I just don't like Christians who, who they're always up all the time. I need somebody who gets tired. And here's what I'm so glad. If I don't have nobody, I got to save you who's tired. Jesus is willing to be fully God to connect with this woman. He journeys there, not when he's got it all together, not when he's got his answers, but he journeys there being fully human. He is tired. But, but not only is he tired, uh, but he's there in a time period when it's going to be very public, when it's noon, when everyone can see. But, but he's not only tired, but there's one more thing. Verse 7, don't miss this. And the woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Did you catch that? He's tired, and the one who is living water becomes thirsty for us. He's tired and he's thirsty. Oh, I wonder if you have a Christ who's tired and thirsty. Yes, he is supreme. But maybe we've got a wrong strategy when it comes to when we engage across cultural boundaries. Maybe we think we come in bringing something rather than coming in knowing that someone's got something to give us. The Christ of Scripture says to the Samaritan woman, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. Wouldn't that change the way we encounter people? And, and I don't know. I haven't talked with your pastor enough. I don't know your ministry philosophy or anything. But I hope y'all ain't here trying to be superhuman. Here you are to change the day. I hope you look at this text and understand that you are very human and the, there's some needs that this community has for you that only they can meet for you. I, I hope you're not always thinking of the strategies that you have because you're going to come in and change the community. Because can I just suggest something to you? That listen, God is so big, he really doesn't need another church plant. 
He certainly doesn't need another church plant that think they can come in and have all the answers. And he definitely doesn't need another church plant that represents the majority culture of this community that wants to be a multi-ethnic church plant. And now all of a sudden, because y'all multi-ethnic, you can come in and change the day. Because you might scare us sociologically because we might think you're just another wave of the gentrification that comes into different communities and bring change. See, this is the other problem about being 57, 58. I really don't care if you don't invite me back. <laughs> Jesus is tired and thirsty. He doesn't approach her from here. He approaches her from down here. He's saying, you've got something you can give me. That's the way he engages in ministry. And she says, notice what the text says. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Here's the other problem. She acknowledges the narrative of the past. Jesus does not try to come in saying, look, our story in the past doesn't matter. He does not try to hide who he is. He does not take a colorblind approach. He does not take an approach that, that, that does not deal with the narrative. He leans into the narrative. Now, I don't know what he did. I don't know if he had Jewish garb or whatever. And I don't know if she could just identify and understand who he was. But he allows her to engage the cultural conversation. He does not erase the problem. The problem will become one of the things that's so powerful is that, hey, wait a minute now. Jew, you, what, what you doing here? He does not say, wait a minute, you all are created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. He does not erase that conversation. He allows her to go on that conversation. It is a problem. Sometimes it's in the problems that many times you understand where the thirst comes from. He's tired, he's weary, and he's a Jew, and she's a Samaritan. He leans into the story. He doesn't try to erase the story. Now, what am I trying to say here? What, what, what does that have to do? It has everything to do with it because sometimes we missed our real thirst because we won't accept our truthful narrative. The Bible that I read, yes, don't quickly rush to Revelation without going through John chapter. I mean, you miss 65 books of the Bible to get to what goes on around the throne. Yeah, absolutely around the throne. There's people there from every ethnos and every ethnic group. But guess what? There are people there from every ethnos and every ethnic group. I always am a mystery how people can have this approach that you don't deal with truthful, wounded things when the throne deals with truthful, wounded things. We're going to be praising God because there's a history of the Confederate reality and union reality, the slave and the slaveholder, which is in our story, the gentrifier and the one who has been displaced, that we have a history that, yes, God somehow is going to take that Jew and Samaritan. Yes, some of you come from a legacy of plantation holders. Yes, some of you come from a legacy of slavery. Don't be ashamed of that. That's the power of the gospel. That in the midst of that legacy, God is doing something new and beautiful. And don't say, well, I just don't know history. I just don't do history. Then you don't do Bible. You can't understand your Bible if you don't understand history. 
So you do need to understand the history and understand some of the unique dynamics of history as well to know that, first of all, there is no such thing as race. All before you get excited and give a theological reality to that. Glad you said that, Pastor White. Why are we doing all this race talk? Because there is no such thing as race. That's what's so crazy about America. Even though there is no such thing as race, there's political and social structures and systems that's been created around the myth of white people and whiteness. And there's no such thing as a white person. But when you begin to look and you see that it was created in the 1600s, it was created to justify, and yet the Constitution, and yet the documents that we love created this false myth and idea that really we're trying to deconstruct. And if you don't know that history, you will put the gospel in the wrong place because the gospel in the right place is there is humanity that is at stake as to why we need to talk about this conversation. Jesus. How could you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? That's the beauty of this church, is you create mystery, but know the truth that the mystery comes out of. But then she has this other problem. What are you doing asking me for something to drink? You see, they didn't have tumblers and they didn't have different paper cups in this time period, you know. Because you know how when you didn't like somebody, you can just give them another cup. <laughs> no, 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 no. They only had one common cup. You mean you're going to put your Jewish lips to my Samaritan cup? Because I only got one thing to draw from the well with. And see, understand the background. This is why the story becomes important. They believe that Samaritans and Jews believe that other people were diseased. And, you know, some of those narratives that you don't want to get too close to certain groups of people because you might catch something and, and everything. No, no. She says, you really going to get intimate now because you're going to drink from the same cup that I'm going to drink from. It's in these problems that you begin to see. That there is thirst. And Jesus is saying to her, he doesn't stop. Notice what he does here. Look at what happens here. It says in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Here's another problem. Jesus is offering her something that she doesn't understand. Just like Nicodemus, don't be critical of her because Nicodemus the Pharisee doesn't understand. Sometimes people can miss spiritual truths, not based on intellectual realities. And this is what we got to be careful because sometimes we think intellect, if I can just teach it to make it clear, make it plain, they'll get it. No, sometimes there's a heart thirst problem that causes you to miss real spiritual truths. Paul says that you're studying Corinthians. Uh, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians, says, but the natural man, uh, it is foolish in him, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. In the first chapters there in 1 Corinthians. Jesus, though, is trying to help her understand something, but she's missing the point. Look at what happens here. And then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? She's still looking here on a very practical level. Okay, it's great. You're going to give me living water, but you don't have anything to draw with. The well is deep. This makes no sense. Have you ever had those conversations where, yes, you're trying to say, yes, this is the key. Jesus meets the thirst, but they're not getting it because she He's not listening yet. But Jesus explains the provision. 
but it's interesting how he explains it. Then she even said, are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us the will and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's even going back in history saying, you're not greater than Jacob. I mean, they drank from this deep well, and he used it. Now, how can you be greater than him? She doesn't understand the provision. You have nothing to draw with. Jesus goes on and says this, though, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, Jacob had this specific technology that the well is used for feeding his cattle, but I've got something deeper. I'm not trying to overturn history. I'm trying to go deeper than that. And here's what he's saying. My provision for you will never leave you thirsty again. You've been hooked on the temporal fix, but I want to give you something that you will never thirst again. It's very similar to what But in the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They forsake me. Uh, The fountains of living water to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. You know what? Here's what Jesus is trying to tell this woman. I want to give you something deeper because I want to give you something where you won't thirst again. But you keep settling for stuff to where there's holes in your pot. Your systems are broken. And Jesus, I'm trying to give you something that that even in the history of our people, that people keep looking for things that do not hold water. Look at your neighbor right now. I know y'all are not a look at your neighbor kind of community. But can you hold water? Notice what Jesus says. What I'm going to give you, though, is internal. He's explaining something to her. Notice how he gets closer to the truth. He says here at the end here in verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. His provision is internal. That's what he's trying to help her understand. Jesus will say this later in John chapter 7, verse 37, where he stands and declares, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost beings will flow waters of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, who those who believed in him would receive the Spirit who was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What Jesus is trying to tell her, my provision for you, Samaritan woman, I want to replace the whole system and structure that you're living with. You came here to the well at noontime, probably some shame because typically you don't come at noontime. You are a Samaritan woman that's got a broken history, and you'll see later Jesus point this out. But I want to give you something that comes from within you that is not broken. And maybe she's getting the point because she says in verse 15, she's probably thinking, okay, he is persistent. The woman said to her, sir, Give me the water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw the water. And I just picture her putting her hands on her hip. Say, all right, great. We're going through all this back and forth living water. You won't have anything to draw with. Okay, fine. I'm tired right now. Give me some water. It's getting hot out here. Give me some water. Okay, let's do this. 
I want it. But look at what Jesus does next. Next verse. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. Because there is a process. And here's the process of having your thirst met. Go and call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Notice how she's dropped all the formalities before she was calling him sir and everything. But he's, he's, he's pointing to something now. I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right, you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And here's the woman. What you have said, he tells her, what you said is true. He was saying, you are wise. You're smart when you say you have no husband. And the woman said to her, she's going back to sir now. Sir, <laughs> I perceive you must be a prophet. What's the process? What's the process of having our thirst met? Here's the first step in the process. Truth. He moves her to the truth. Go and call your husband. Now, I need you to understand something here real clearly because we've missed this text in many ways, I think. First of all, you have to understand the background here. For her to have had five husbands means that she's been through some serious broken relationships. But it also means not only broken relationships, but in this time period, in this culture, a woman could not divorce a man. So that means she's been rejected five times. That means she's at a point, I'm tired of marriage. It doesn't work. She's at a point where she's in this situation where she can't get out of. She knows no other way. She's given up, can't meet the need. So I'm not even doing the marriage thing. I'll live in shame in the village. I'll create a whole different system in navigating through life and go to the well at noontime. Jesus is not trying to be brutal with her. And it seems like that. And some have wrongly taught as though he's really trying to move to truth and, it, and as if he's humiliating. He's not humiliating her. He's being very gentle with her when he points to the truth in her life. Life. Go and call your husband. Why would he have to do that? Because watch this now. Don't miss this now. Because she will never be able to receive Jesus if she doesn't deal with the truth. And what he has done is he's brought her to the deepest place of brokenness so that she will remember what he said earlier. Remember he says that, listen, you have the gift. That what I'm going to give you is a gift. And the reason why he has to go here, because he says, if you knew the gift of God in verse 10 and who it is saying to you, give you a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's the process. I got to bring you to your brokenness because if I don't bring you to your brokenness, you won't receive me in terms of a gift. Why do I have to go to the darkest, deepest, ugly part of your life? Why does he do that? So that you and I will come to grips with there's nothing I can do in order to receive Jesus Christ. I can't save myself. I can't get out of the addiction. And the real thirst quencher of Jesus says, I'm going to bring you to that point of brokenness so that you will know that I am a gift. Be careful of saying you are a gospel-centered church. 
Because gospel-centered churches always deal with the darkness and depths of their lives so that they don't forget that what they have is a gift. Be careful of using that language because gospel-centered marriages mean that you're honest about the fact that here's why the divorce happened and here's how we are right now. Because we know that Jesus is a gift. Jesus does this to this woman in a gracious way. Go call your husband so that you will receive the gift because what I want to give you is a gift. And that is the process when Jesus meets us. And obeys. And when we obey him and experience him and have our thirst met. And the woman, though, she did need some help. The woman said, Jesus said, the woman said to her, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, have you ever met people like that? They, they get close to getting the answer. Now they want to go theological. Okay, got another question for you. Uh, where's the right place? <laughs> Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? You ever notice that, see, when Jesus really does get to the deepest point of your thirst, all of a sudden you get intellectual and theological and you, you begin to ask questions and, and rather than really meeting him, you begin making up. Well, let me ask a question. Are you a post-millennium pre-trib church? Let me, let me ask you a question. Is this a Calvinistic church? Five-point Calvinist, four-point Calvinist? Y'all understand Tulip and what have you? And now all of a sudden you start speaking stuff that ain't got nothing to do with your being thirsty. She does that. She tries to go someplace else. And look at what Jesus says to her. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. I love how truthful Jesus is. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and and truth. Jesus is saying to her, here is the process. You've got to acknowledge who you really are, but your whole frame about worship has got to change. You think it's a place, but it's a person, and that person begins with you engaging as a person in spirit and truth. You and I will never be thirsty if we keep mechanizing our lives rather than humanizing our lives, understanding that the reason why we worship in spirit and truth, because because that's who God is. And your truth is what makes you human. Your truth, your broken truth. And if you worship him, you must worship him in that spirit, in the internal reality of who you are. And truth, it's not a place, it's a person. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. But notice what he says here. The time is now. You think this is something in the future. It's right now. And you see this later that the time is now. Because go look at what happens. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. This sister is smart, you all, who is called Christ. But when he comes, he will tell us all things. Here's what I like about her, but here's what's challenging. Even though she's only got the first five 
five books of the Pentateuch, even though she doesn't have the complete understanding because Jesus even told her, you do not know the full story because it's going to come through the Jews. But here's what shames me about the Samaritan sister is she's at least taking what she does know and put truth to it. That's why you can meet non-Christians, people who don't even know the Bible, who will, if they take the truth that they do know, then as Paul says in Romans 1, they are accountable for the truth that they know, and she is responding to it. Jesus says, the hour is now. Y'all, it's a preview. Jesus is giving her a preview of who he really is, but here's what blows my mind. We know the rest of the story. The woman even says to him that we'll know when Messiah comes, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, the disciples are coming back, verse 27, and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And so the woman left her water pot and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that we have done. Is he not the Christ? Let me wrap this up real quick for you here. This woman is not wearing a mask anymore as Paul Lawrence Dunbar talks about the mask that we wear. She is real. She said, y'all, come see a man who told me all that I have done. Now, we don't know if he's told her everything, but the brothers in the town and the women in the town probably going, oh my gosh, all that she has done and she's had five, oh my goodness, who is this? Because what? She has met the Messiah She is not thirsty anymore. She's willing to go and say, come see the one and all that I've done. And you read the rest of the story and you know that Jesus had an incredible moment in Samaria. But there's another point in that text that I don't want you to miss that the Bible points out. Seems like a small point. Say she left her water pot. (laughs) She left her water pot. Oh, y'all, I like that. See, that, you got to read your Bible carefully. It's like that little scene in the movie. It's like that little scene in the movie where you think it doesn't have anything, but it's everything to do with it. She left her water pipe. Why did she leave her water pipe? Because she ain't thirsty no more. She's met the one who has really quenched her thirst. She don't need a water pipe anymore. She's met living water, you all now. She doesn't need a water pipe, and he is living water. We know that from knowing the end of the story. Because we know later at the end of the story, the Jesus that meets her thirst when he's on the cross, he becomes thirsty for us. That's what's so incredible. In a few moments, we're going to have communion. And in a few moments, we're going to have communion because the one who died on the cross became thirsty so that we wouldn't thirst again. That's the kind of Messiah that we serve. This woman says, I've met him. I know him. He's told me all that I have done. See, Jesus isn't just tired. That is just a foreshadow of what he would do for you and me because he became tired again. They nailed his hands. They nailed his feet. Why? So that he could be our Messiah. Are you looking for water? The only place you can find it is Jesus. So before we go into communion, there are a few questions I want to ask you. First of all, are you thirsty? Secondly, where are you looking for water? Hey, what's the truth this morning that hurts? Could be the thing that God is using to bring you to himself. Here's the last thing. We're going to come and take the body and blood of Jesus in a few moments. I invite you to leave your water pot today. I invite you to leave that thing that you think has life. Because the only thing that has life is Jesus. I don't know about you, 
but I'm thirsty, but I'm so glad that we know the one who can meet our thirst. Father, thank you that you're still, still engaging us, willing to be thirsty on our behalf, willing to take our place. You're the one that knows everything about me, and yet you love me. You're the Messiah. You're the one that I'm looking for. You're the one that knows the truth, and in spirit and truth, we can worship you. And Lord, now in a few moments, we just want to do that. We want to acknowledge in communion that your body and blood is enough, that you're the one that meets all our thirst. Father, thank you that we're family that we get to do this together. And it's in the name of the thirst quencher we pray. Amen.